You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello there. Actually, this is not Mary Woods. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge, a, a organization which is family-founded and family-oriented, evidence-based um, treatment for people with dual disorders. We've had a number of excellent guests on this show, and we're very lucky today to have Neil Scholar today, um, who's an expert in cognitive behavioral therapies, um, in particular with people with psychotic disorders. Um, so I'd like to introduce Neil and um, hear a little bit about um, what you've been doing. Now, Neil is the medical director at Project Transitions. And, Neil, could you tell us a little bit about Project Transitions and, in particular, about the book that you've co-written with Aaron Beck on cognitive therapies and schizophrenia? Yeah, Project Transition um, has about six sites now. It's a residential treatment program which really focuses on integrating, we, we call our patients, we use the term members, integrating the members into the community by having them live in an apartment complex um, intermingled with other people living in the complex. And we have our offices in the complex as well. The members come for individual psychotherapy treatment, psychiatric uh, medication treatment, uh, group therapy, different workshops. They also have what we call uh, psychiatric rehabilitation counselors who help them um, with different uh, things such as trying to get jobs or trying to get connected with school, etc. And the idea is to have them, as the, the name of the company implies, transition from previously being in hospitals or other more restricted settings and eventually move into the community. And there's a wide range of uh, diagnoses, including bipolar disorder, major depression, borderline personality disorder, and uh, schizophrenia. Sounds like a wonderful program. And we had um, one of your founding directors on the show several months ago. Right. Um, Neil, um, you were trained at um, Illinois and then did your psychiatry residency at University of Pennsylvania, um, which is a um, wonderful institution in particular around cognitive therapies with Erin uh, Beck there for a very long time. Um, mm -hmm. And I see that you're, the, uh, you're a clinical associate professor there still working um, within the Brain Behavior Laboratory and the Schizophrenia Research Center. Um, so it sounds as if your speciality is particularly around cognitive therapies. Is that right? Right. And uh, right now we're doing a project with Dr. Beck um, looking at using cognitive therapy for the treatment of schizophrenia and focusing on the negative symptoms in addition to the positive symptoms. Um, the negative symptoms involve lack of motivation and volition, um, not showing facial expressions or showing expression in your voice, not talking as much. Um, these symptoms have not been focused on 
as much in using cognitive therapy as have the positive symptoms of hallucinations and delusions. So we're trying to extend the treatment of cognitive therapy beyond what it had been um, so far. That sounds really interesting. I certainly want to ask you about that later in the show, mm-hmm. but it might be uh, important to hear about its use in positive symptoms first so I can understand. And by the way, congratulations on the upcoming publication of your book, Schizophrenia, Cognitive Theory, Research and Therapy, which you co-wrote with Dr. Beck and other authors. Right. Um, so, Neil, could you tell me, how did you become interested in cognitive therapy of schizophrenia? Well, in my medical school training, we, and I heard from other people the same situation, that we were told not to be concerned about the content of voices or delusions except in order to categorize them. So if someone yes, had... absolutely. Right. So you, so you can categorize as it being paranoid or grandiose, and then that was it. You weren't supposed to be concerned about the content. Well, it's hard when you're working in an inpatient and one of your patients is saying that their voices are telling them to kill themselves or to stop their medication or to leave the hospital. It's hard not to believe that the person might be having these thoughts themselves. And right around the time I was learning that way, people in England were starting to express the idea that it was important to listen to the content and there usually is some kind of psychological meaning behind them. Mm-hmm. And uh, It was a very interesting historical split between the content and the, uh, and the form of thought and there was such an emphasis, I think, which really started in, the, in Europe with, on the form of thought and, and meanwhile, on both sides of the pond, people were attending to the content, but generally in psychodynamic fashions, thinking about the inner meanings of the work, of the, of the thoughts and what they might be expressing of inner conflict. But then that's right, people in the United Kingdom, where I was trained incidentally, mm-hmm. um, started working much more with cognitive approaches. And, um, and then, so it was really your work with people in the units where you, where you had difficulty just ignoring the content of their thought. They felt like they had meaning that you could work with. Right. It, to give an example, and this occurred um, during the later part of residency, I was working at a community mental health center as their psychiatrist. So I would come and see people once a month basically just find out about their symptoms and change the medication. But I'd already been trained in cognitive therapy at Penn, and again, it was hard to ignore the content of what I was hearing. So this one woman had a delusion that it was an elderly woman, and she thought that people in the building next door were coming in at night and stealing her baby that she that they would deliver her baby and steal it so she thought that she was pregnant and they would steal the fetus basically so you know for months i was handling this and with the medical model that this is a delusion need to be treated with medication but eventually i decided to use some of the cognitive therapy techniques that i learned for depression and anxiety and apply it to her delusion so one of the major aspects of cognitive therapy is to try to examine evidence for one's thoughts, one's beliefs. 
So I asked her what led her to believe this is happening, and she said it's because she wakes up and her bed is wet. So her assumption was that the water bag broke and made the bed wet. turned out that she had incontinence. She was wetting her bed at night, and the staff didn't know this. I guess she was taking care of it herself. So getting at the meaning of her delusion actually helped in a practical way for the people who were treating her there because they didn't know that this had been going on. Another example with the same woman is that uh, we found out that she had a heart problem, but just after that she had this illusion that she was being stabbed in the back. And again, I asked her what led her to believe that she's being stabbed in the back, and she pointed to the left side of her chest and said, because I can feel the knife point right here which is probably related to her heart condition. Now, it turned out we had known about the heart condition just before this happened, but had that not been the case, this might have been the only way that we knew about her chest pain was through this delusion. It's really astonishing and a bit embarrassing, I think, for psychiatry that for so many years the content was ignored mm-hmm. and important information or retranslation of important sensations and themes in people's lives were ignored. Right. Can you take a step back a little bit and tell me, um, what exactly is cognitive therapy? Well, cognitive therapy, and as you mentioned, was developed by Aaron T. Back um, at the University of Pennsylvania back in the 60s, and it was initially used for depression and then quickly spread to be used for anxiety, substance abuse, uh, marriage counseling, um, bipolar disorder, and more recently for schizophrenia. And the basic idea is that situations or events don't directly cause our emotions. It's our attitudes, our thoughts, our beliefs about situations that lead to our emotional reactions. So if you want to handle psychological problems that involve emotions and and the behaviors that come from the emotions, one way to do that is to address the thoughts directly. So to give an example, if you have four people that get laid off from a job, you might have a situation where the same event, being laid off, can cause four different, lead to four different emotions, anger, depression, anxiety, or happiness. Now, the person who's angry might feel that it was unjust for them to be laid off, that somebody else who was there um, for less period of time was kept while they were laid off, so they might be angry at the situation. Somebody who's anxious might be worried that they'll never find another job. They might have the belief that they're going to be destitute because they'll never be able to get employed again. The person who's depressed might think that their boss must not think that they're worthy enough to be kept, and so they might have negative feelings about themselves, low self-esteem, and then get depressed. person who's happy, which you might not expect from this situation, but there could be someone who had been working for the company for years and had wanted to move on or retire or whatever and um, didn't know how to approach their boss to say, I really want to leave the company, so when they're laid off, they might be happy. This is the opportunity they were looking for. So that's an example where the same situation 
leads to four different emotions by way of the thoughts and attitudes that people have about the same situation. And that if you can, in some ways what you described is that people with a, a set of emotions or dispositions initially um, have different um, thoughts upon and reflections upon their being fired. Um, but similarly, the kind of thoughts that you can generate with a person can then have knock-on effects on their perception of the events and their mood state? Right, and we call these thoughts automatic thoughts, and what that means is that often we're aware of the situation and our emotional and behavioral reaction, but we often miss what the thoughts are that, that led to that, and they seem to be automatic. They come real quickly. They can be fleeting. And one of the main parts of cognitive therapy is to have the person identify these automatic thoughts to take the time to think through the event again and try to go through what is going on in their thinking during that moment and then look at those thoughts and try to examine them to see if they're valid thoughts. They might have what we call cognitive distortions attached to them. So the person who is anxious that they'll never find another job, if you examine the evidence, they might have been laid off or quit or fired from jobs in the past, have these same thoughts, they'll never find a job again, and sure enough, after a while, they do find another job. So you want to look at the evidence of whether something is valid or not. Um, sometimes we do come across automatic thoughts that are valid. Then you want to look at what's the utility of the thought. Does it help to keep focusing on that thought if it's leading to negative emotions or negative behaviors, or is it better to do something and, and not be so caught up in the thought itself. But most of the work deals with looking at the validity of the thoughts themselves. Okay. So here's the rub. In psychotic disorders, say a delusion is defined by the fact that you can't shake it in the face of contrary evidence. Right. So before you can label someone as having a delusion instead of an idea... You have to challenge it and say, well, you can't shake it. They hold it with an abnormal conviction. So how would you go about applying um, a cognitive therapy approach to something like a delusion? Right. It, it, is, it does take longer time period, and in some cases, in, in many cases, delusion doesn't go away completely, but the person is able to dampen the strength of their belief. Now, I have had some people who have been able to give up delusions after a long period of time. Um, one, excuse me, was, um, it was actually I was working with a therapist. I was doing the medication. He was doing the therapy, but um, he and I were collaborating about using cognitive therapy, and uh, that so, Neil, the music that you're hearing tells us that we're coming up for a break. Oh, okay. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about this participant a little later. Oh, okay. So that we can illustrate these differences with delusional disorders. Thank you. Thanks. 
You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, welcome back. Um, this is Mark Green hosting this week for one hour at a time. We are lucky to have Neil Stollard today. Let's get back to Neil talking about cognitive therapy and schizophrenia. Neil, you were just telling us about an example of someone who you were working with with delusions, please. Let's continue. Yeah, so this person had the delusion that strangers that he would see on the street or in a store were angry at him. And he actually would hit people sometimes when he thought that they were angry. So it was a pretty serious situation. Absolutely. And I was working with, this was again at a community mental health center, and I didn't do the direct therapy, but I was working with a therapist, uh, Dennis Given, who we were working together and discussing um, this case. Now, first what um, Dr. Given did is he... Some of you know that there's these charts that have different faces, cartoon faces of different emotions, and then they label the emotions. Well, everyone knows about that chart. My feeling states. Right. So what he did is he took down the chart and he covered up the names of the emotions and he asked the person what each emotion was. Well, this person labeled every emotion, even neutral, as angry except for happy. If he saw a smiley face, he thought. That's happiness. Everything else is anger. So now we realize that he's probably seeing faces of people that are neutral or even anxious or maybe some are angry, and he's 
interpreting them all as being angry. Well, then um, Dr. Given worked with the person's automatic thought of that these people are angry with him and tried to get him to look at other alternative explanations. And one is that the person might not be angry. And two, the person might be angry, but it might have nothing to do with the patient himself. So eventually, through weeks and weeks of doing this, the person was able to stop hitting people and he was able to stop having um, this delusion. Now, what would happen is he would get the thought. It didn't go away. He would initially get the thought, this person's anger at me, but he'd remember what he learned in therapy, and he, in his mind he'd think about the alternative explanations and then realize the person's probably not angry at him. So again, there were certain limitations that the thought didn't go away completely, but he was able to handle the thought in his own mind, and one of the important things was that he did not act on it. He, he stopped hitting people. Yeah, one of, the, one of the aspects, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, um, one of the aspects of cognitive therapy that I've always felt was important was it really gives punctuation. Instead of an automatic process going from a stimulus to an, a response, which in, our, in many of our participants is not the, the most advantageous to get on with their goals, um, there's little time for thought. But when mm-hmm. you punctuate it with a process, um, an explicit process, looking at people's thoughts and asking them to pause and reflect upon the, those, you get the opportunity for different reflection. And it also sounds as if this gifted therapist um, put in some social cues training at the same time to really help people help um, that particular client right. understand that there are probably some cognitive issues going on here so that he wasn't reading faces correctly. Exactly. Which, which um, some of my research at the behavioral, behavioral uh, brain lab is also um, involved with showing that there's some problems with people's schizophrenia and interpreting faces. So um, mm-hmm. direct research has shown that that is the case. And here is an example in so-called real life of somebody having that and how it's affecting their life. So from the cognitive perspective, you put the emphasis on the, on the cognitions, the thought processes, as driving those um, more downstream information processing differences, or it doesn't really matter. It's it's just that you, it, a way of splitting up the automatic behavior and working with it. There, um, I mean, there are different levels, you know, that that it can be approached, and um, usually in our work, we're dealing with more of the downstream, higher levels of thinking. Um, but there is work that there's a related term, or actually a couple of related terms, um, cognitive remediation, cognitive rehabilitation. Yeah. Sometimes they call it cognitive rehabilitation therapy, where they work on more of the building blocks, I think, that you're talking about in terms of attention, memory, facial mm-hmm. recognition, et cetera, um, decision-making. Yeah. And uh, there's some thought that if you do some training, if a person gets trained in those things first, they might actually do better in the cognitive therapy we do in terms of getting at the higher level thinking of the beliefs and attitudes. It's a fascinating area. We're definitely going to get another radio show on that one. But <laughs> right. um, now, a lot of the time, we 
in, in residency were dissuaded from arguing too much with um, participants or clients about their beliefs. And you would hear of parents and um, family members getting into trying to talk patients out of their delusions. Is what you do different? Yes, it, it, and I can understand. I've given talks to um, NAMI groups where it's mainly um, parents, and I can see that people might think, well, this is what I've been doing for years and it's not working. Why do you think what you're talking about would work? So I can understand that. Um, a big difference is um, a major aspect of cognitive therapy for whatever disorder is the collaborative nature of the therapy. You try to set goals together and individual agendas for the for the individual session and uh, try to work together to also discover the automatic thoughts and discover if they're true or not. So you kind of see it as a process of, of collaborative empiricism is one of the words that have been used. You're trying to discover facts together. So one thing you need to do is to work with the person and see what, sometimes there is some evidence that supports their delusion, some aspect. So again, this woman thinking she was pregnant and that somebody stole the baby, if you just try to tell her that's ridiculous, you're elderly, you're not pregnant, nobody's coming in, nobody can get in, if you try to just argue that way, you're not getting at the fact that she wakes up and there's water in her bed. Yes. So the idea is to try to see what's behind, what's the psychological meaning behind their delusions. And often it's not something as physical as water in their bed. Sometimes it's self-esteem issues that are driving the delusions, especially when you think about grandiose delusions. So you want to support what's going on beneath the delusion. And, and so sometimes I work with people to have their life be more enriched to see if they can go to school or go to do a um, supported type employment. And sometimes when they feel better about themselves, some of these delusions that help their self-esteem are easier in, in disappearing or at least diminishing. So that's one part of it. And the other part is taking time to really establish a good rapport with the person and have them trust in you and take time. Often I go over with people again and again, what are some alternative explanations? And sometimes I have to say, even if you don't believe the alternative explanations, what are some that you could think of that maybe other people would see as an explanation? And when they start thinking of possible alternatives, very, very gradually they're able to give up or at least diminish the strength of the belief that they had. So you're talking about the, those non-specific factors which are so powerful, even though non-specific factors is a, a diminutive name like the power of the alliance and the respect and the curiosity of an empathic therapist um, to say, well, what actually is going on for you right now? Mm -hmm. Let's take it seriously and think about it together. Right. And, also, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, even though there are studies supporting 
the use of cognitive therapy um, for the treatment of schizophrenia, even if the person didn't overtly get better, even if they still had voices and delusions, there's an aspect of doing this type of therapy where the person feels listened to, and that can help them for how they feel inside. And I've seen that. Often that leads to improvement in the, the symptoms themselves, but that just the person feeling that they're being taken seriously as a human being can be helpful for them because often... It must be such a dramatic change for so many of our clients who've mm-hmm. been in and out of hospitals and um, doctor's offices where their experiences have been somewhat dismissed as just psychotic and they're quickly diminished to a patient with schizophrenia instead of a person actively living their lives with these complex anxiety-provoking challenges. And to have the experience of someone actually listening and caring to discuss with them um, the pros and cons and aspects and nuance of their beliefs must be a very welcome and new and powerful experience for them. Right, you've hit that right on target. That that's it's an important part um, of what I do, and uh, other people certainly have concerns about the symptoms being at least diminished. And you know that is an important part of our work. But the part you're talking about and that I'm alluding to here is important too that the person themselves feel that that there's a person there not just a patient that they're not just the set of symptoms there's feelings and wishes and desires etc going on inside of them doesn't always get expressed directly sometimes it's by means of voices or by means of hallucinations and delusions i mean um so it it, it creates more of the value of what's going on inside of them by doing mm-hmm. this kind of work. You know, Neil, you were talking about how sometimes people getting involved in their in a life um, other than being wrapped up in an identity as a mentally ill patient, but someone becoming actively working and having a role within their family and how the intensity of the delusions can recede a little bit when they're committed to a valued goal mm-hmm. um, and we do see these interactions so much between evidence-based practices and such as cognitive behavioral therapies and evidence-based practices like supported employment um, is but your work is different um, than just accepting the experience without arguing it too much and instead committing your attention to the valued goal Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that difference, if we could, after the break. Okay, Neil? We'll be back soon after a short break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge. Welcome back to One Hour of Time. Let's get back to Neil um, talking about cognitive therapy and schizophrenia. Neil, I just asked you a question, really, which tried to get the difference between CBT and ACT, um, or acceptance and commitment therapy, really. But I was, I was curious. You talked about people's attention to a, a valued goal and how delusions can recede a bit, but you do more in CBT. You actually sort of go toward the um, aberrant thought and try to question it and shake it and play with it a little bit. How do you feel that difference is important? What difference does it make and how crucial is it? Um, Let me see if I have what you're saying correctly. Are you saying in terms of what I do versus ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy? Yeah, and the focus within cognitive therapy on the cognitions and how in, a, in treatment of psychotic disorders you might really try to highlight those. Yeah, I think um, that there are aspects of the acceptance part that, that we do, um, even though we don't necessarily call it that, um, in the sense that I guess some of what I was talking about in terms of trying to get at some of the deeper meaning and realizing that there's some truth, some aspect of the delusion that that is there so that you don't want to try to get the person to just give up the belief completely. You want to find out what aspect is is true that you need to then work with. So again, there was an example of the woman with with the water in the bed. You don't want to throw out that aspect that there is water in the bed and try to just discount the delusion completely. And then the other people where 
there are self-esteem issues that if you try to just get them to give up the delusion, there's still the self-esteem questions that they have, the concerns, and sometimes that is what makes it hard to have them give up the delusion because the part that's true is sort of like an anchor that's not going to budge um, unless you address it directly and work with it then the whole thing can go away and you can deal with the self-esteem, you know, more directly. So um, there is some aspect um, of the acceptance in in that regard. And um, it, it seems like you, you have to have some of that there or else you are going to get the resistance, you know, and, and try to really understand where the person's coming from rather than simply have them look at the evidence and look for alternative explanations. Um, right, but you are saying something important um, about using the process of cognitive therapy to get a little deeper to what people are particularly worried about or perturbed about, which has special significance to them and may be rooted in experiences going way back. Um, which will need to be accepted and validated and and uh, reviewed in in the therapy um, for people to be able to move forward. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. Hey, could you give us an example, perhaps, of um, working with someone with some hallucinations? You gave a lovely one with someone with a delusion. How would you work with someone who is experiencing an auditory hallucination, for example? Yes, and for some reason, um, in, in my own practice, I don't get voices for some reason. I don't know how that is. So I mainly work um, with delusions, but I can go through what um, people do to work with cognitive therapy for voices. And, and I'm not sure why it is that I'm not getting that the people come to me. It's mainly delusions. Um, though, though, in working in Community My Health Center, where I saw people from medication, I do get some people who get voices and have been able to, um, by the time they, they first see me, they already know that there are hallucinations, they know that medication helps, and they're not as bothered by them, so the distress goes down. Um, a lot of the work with hallucinations is with the belief about the voices and not so much the voices themselves. And some people have these fears of the voices. They think that the voices are all powerful. And again, you can work on what is the evidence and uh, what are alternative explanations. So in terms of evidence, if a voice tells somebody to do something or else something bad would happen, Often you can ask the person, how long has the voice been saying this? Well, it's been five years. Have you done the thing that it says? No, I haven't. Has anything bad happened from that? No. And they start realizing they have this fear based on a belief that's not substantiated. And and they realize when you point it out to them that, no, the, the bad thing hasn't happened. So often that can help people be less distressed from the voice, and, and sometimes when the, the distress goes down and the emotion goes down, the voice actually diminishes in frequency and in volume, 
in terms of alternative explanations, it often helps for a person to recognize that the voices are part of their psychiatric condition and that medication can help that. And often that helps them when they know that it's some process that that is going on inside of them that's not their fault and it's not a real thing, it's not a real person that they're hearing. And sometimes that can really comfort people to get that knowledge. Now, you have to be careful because some people can get more distressed if they learn and get the insight that they have schizophrenia. So it's something you have to be very careful about. Some people can feel like they've wasted all these years with it, or they can feel that there's the stigma attached to them now that they realize what's going on. So it can go in different directions when people get more insight um, into knowing that they have this condition. Um, They have to have a sensitive team. Exactly. Relationships so that you can look for the um, possible responses as people um, might get upset and more at risk. Right. And there is, um, it it comes to mind, there is somebody that I, again, saw in, um, and I still see in Community Mental Health Center that um, I did do some cognitive therapy real briefly, but it seemed to work with um, her voices. She was new to me, and she said that her voices are telling her that the people at our agency were trying to hurt her, that she didn't really want to come here because they were going to hurt her. So I asked her, you know, sometimes voices are saying things that, in a sense, are could be the automatic thoughts of the person. So I asked her, is this just what the voices are telling you, or is this something that you believe also? And she admitted that she believed that we were going to hurt her. She thought that the medication was going to make her like a zombie. And so what I did is I explained to her about the newer medications and what what she's heard about with people being like zombies or more with the older medications. I told her we can start out slowly and just give her as much as she needed, but not anymore. If she has side effects, we can reduce it. And that helped a lot, and she... Started the medication as she's been compliant. Now it's been about four years, and it had to do with using the cognitive therapy technique of taking the content of the voices and, and approaching it to first asking, is this what you're thinking as well, and then work on it as her automatic thought. Yes. So once again, that's an example where the content was respected and the person's situation and feelings um, and attitude towards their situation was um, respected and it probably allowed her to feel ownership of that once again and acknowledge it with you so that you could work collaboratively and move forward together. Exactly. The alternative approach would be to say, to think in my mind, okay, and write it down in the chart, has a delusion, and tell her, listen, you need to take this medication because you're having these thoughts or whatever, to, you know, to just approach it very um, clinically and not trying to get at her as a person, what kind of fears are she is she possibly yeah. having when she expresses it in terms of a voice saying something to her. Yeah. Neil, can cognitive therapy help with other symptoms of schizophrenia? I mean, you said earlier that you were involved in some studies around negative symptoms. I'm very interested to hear a little more about that. Yes, we um, 
most of the work that's been done in England and, and it's been spreading around to other parts of the world. It seems like a lot of things start in England, right? <laughs> um, but they, uh, most of the work had been done with hallucinations and delusions um, and not so much with thought disorder, formal thought disorder, and the negative symptoms. Uh, thought disorder involves problems with the way that things are communicated so that someone can go off subject real quickly and you don't even realize what it is that that they're trying to say. It can get very incoherent and, and just be confusing. At, a, at an extreme form, some people can just do rhyming forms of a word and not really have any meaning behind what they're saying. Um, so the work we're, we're not doing as much with thought disorder at this time, but our model of thought disorder is that it can be similar to stuttering or stammering and that maybe the person is feeling anxious in some way and that that seems to be making it worse. It does seem like certain topics can make thought disorder work worse. So the idea is to try to get at and, and ask the person, try to figure out what might be making them more anxious and work on that in the way you would with cognitive therapy for anxiety in general, try to figure out what issues are, are causing the anxiety. Um, but in another sense, there are some times when a person has thought disorder that, and there's a very difficult process, that sometimes what they're saying does have some kind of meaning, but they switch around with the topics too quickly, even within a sentence, they'll what we call do what we call derailment, where they completely go off track and you don't know where they're coming from. So it takes an effort to keep them on the same topic and try to ask for explanations of what they just said and really it's a tough process, but really try to tease out what they are trying to communicate. Again, we haven't done as much work with that, but that is the general method of what would be done with the negative symptoms. And again, that's not showing affect on the face or in the voice, um, not having motivation, um, sometimes not even caring to do anything. Though most of the people I see want to have a job, want to have a relationship, but they're not motivated to do so. In that area, the model behind it is that they might have these negative thoughts about themselves that they can't do something and that it's not worth even trying to do it if they can't do it. So what we do is systematically try to get them to do certain skills very gradually. So uh, one patient in, in our study um, lived with his mother and, and really wasn't doing anything, so his therapist, one of the uh, co-authors on the book, worked with him to do something simple like toasting bread. And so Yeah, we're that. coming up for a break, so okay. I'll tell you a little bit about this after the break too. Um, and thank you so much. We'll be back one hour at a time in a moment. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello there. This is Mark Green standing in for Mary Woods. I'm the psychiatrist at Westbridge, speaking with Neil Stoller, another psychiatrist and expert in cognitive therapy of psychotic disorders. Now, Neil, you were talking about the application of cognitive behavioral therapies to negative symptoms and also to cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia, which, and both of those correlate much more strongly, probably, um, with long-term outcomes and engagement in work and um, improvement in social skills. So to find the application of cognitive therapy for this and to have some decent outcomes would be a very important stride forward, I think. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you're using the idea of looking at people's automatic negative thoughts that you are, you are assuming that there must be some automatic negative thoughts within their, their patterns of speech and their difficulties with motivation and their difficulties with taking strides forward and giving air to and talking about those negative thoughts and helping people resolve them. Is that right? Yeah, there was work done by uh, Dr. Neil Rector in Toronto. He's one of the other authors on the um, book yeah. that we uh, are, that that's coming out in November, and he used the dysfunctional attitude scale and uh, showed that there are some of these negative attitudes um, that people with negative symptoms have, and he actually showed improvement with uh, in, in his study of people with negative symptoms. Um, but now we're doing a basically a follow-up study. Um, with Dr. Beck and uh, Dr. Paul Grant, he's uh, the fourth author on the book, and, and some other people in our lab to try to really do this as a main focus of the study. And try, uh, the basic idea is to, and again, there's some behavioral aspects to it as well as the cognitive, um, get people to try different things that they might be avoiding and, and do it stepwise, so uh, Dr. Grant has a patient that he got had an assignment of, uh, I think, just toasting bread, and later it was boiling an egg, and 
what happens is when, when someone does some of these simpler activities that could be hard for them to some degree, they realize that they can master it and the self-esteem improves and there's less negative thoughts about what one can do. But again, it's a slow process. Um, sometimes um, it means instead of being in the therapy room, going with the person outside and going to like a cafe area and uh, being out in the public and sometimes that helps them because they start realizing they can do that. They're doing it the therapist first, um, but then they can start doing it more on their own. So there's some overlap with work with uh, social phobia and uh, other other similar work with depression where you give scheduled activities. Um, we, we started using a Palm Pilot, which would go off at certain times and the person can get some instruction that's programmed into it and they can fill out some uh, questions as well. So there's a lot of providing in an external way their motivation and getting them to realize they can do certain things. Mm -hmm. and then it's eventually... so interesting to see how there's so much focus these days on functional outcome and in the promise of recovery, the understanding that people can recover and treatments do work. In some ways, psychiatry is getting around to listening to what people with schizophrenia have been saying for quite a long time. Exactly. But, um, and, and at last, psychiatry is being shaken away from this very rigid um, nihilistic attitude towards schizophrenia, um, which brought so much hopelessness and in different realms of research and practice people are moving forward on on these kind of approaches cognitive remediation and um, supported employment and um, supported housing and uh, on all of these fronts um, you're, 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 you're doing the same thing really from a cognitive therapy perspective but we're seeing a burgeoning of this throughout the community Yes, and, and it dovetails with the work here at Project Transition. So we are starting, we're in the midst of a training at, at my site of getting the whole staff on board in terms of using these type of techniques, whether they're the therapists or what we call PRC or other places have case manager or counselors, mm -hmm. um, even the, our van driver and secretary. We're trying to get everyone to understand the principles so that they can use it at the moment, things happen with our members, and that can work in congruent in congruence with the recovery, the more direct recovery work, and, and make it better for people to get out there and have jobs and, and go to school and things like that. So, um, yeah, we're applying that here. Um, and there are, as far as individual play clinics that, that do provide of therapy, there is a list on a website called schizophrenia.com. Um, somebody there tried to collect information in terms of addresses and names of people around the country who are doing this kind of work. It's mainly in the research realm, um, but uh, it's starting to grow in terms of people providing this kind of service. It certainly is. 
Um, we do it too here at Westbridge along with those other evidence-based practices that we've been talking about. And it's, it's really driven from a belief in recovery, a, a respect for people's um, meaning within their lives and pursuits of meaning and that and 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 a refusal to um, write people's experiences off um, just because they have a psychiatric label and the results are very promising you get to experience people's recovery um, with them and it makes the practice of uh, this work considerably more enjoyable um, Neil, did you, um, can I ask you, uh, do people who receive this therapy no longer need medication? Um, that's an important point is that people do still need to take the medication. Um, the idea is that this helps to get them to go further than they would with medication alone. For, for many people, the medication doesn't do at all. And um, at least at the present time, there's nothing showing that they would not need to stay on the medication. Perhaps they might be able to reduce the dose a bit after having cognitive therapy um, of this sort. Um, but the goal is more to improve their life rather than to try to get them off um, medication. But, but I have given talks where people, even though I mentioned in the talk, people still ask, is that the case, that they don't need medication? And then... We've not seen any proof of that. So. Although in my own practice and at Westbridge and elsewhere, I have found that through the application of cognitive therapies and schizophrenia, alongside um, people learning all kinds of coping skills and getting involved in their life and having a support structure, you can achieve substantial reductions of medications. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, people can become the master of their own recovery and begin to understand when they need to increase their dose uh, as stresses come forward, have you have you found that too? Um, not in any consistent way. Um, most of the people that I've seen have uh, been through rounds of different types and doses of medication, so they've gotten to the point where they're comfortable with what they're on. Um, but in some cases, it does help them that they can reduce it. And, and most of the people I see now are not having problems with the side effects, so they're pretty much okay with what they're at. But, yeah, certainly Neil, people can try to do that. We've come to the end of a very interesting um, discussion. I would have loved to carry on talking with you longer. Neil Stoller, you've been an excellent guest um, from Project Transitions. You're doing fascinating and important work, and it really brings us to a discussion of the hopefulness and recovery that can be experienced for people with schizophrenia. And I commend you on your upcoming book, which I look Thank forward you. to reading. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.